0: But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasonable animals, these are the very things that destroy them. "'Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. "'They have rushed for profit into Balaam's air, "'They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. "'These men are blemishes at your love feasts, "'eating with you without the slightest qualm, "'shepherds who feed only themselves. "'They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, "'autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. "'They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up in their shame, "'wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness "'has been reserved forever.'" Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly way. And of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. This is God's holy word, you guys. You may have a seat. Thank you for standing as we read through that. But as you see, I want to just look at the effect that these false teachers seem to have had on the church here. Because essentially, a lot of things can lead to doubt in our lives. Um, some of the circumstances that we face, some of the grief, some of the uncertainty, some of the disappointments that we face in our lives. Uh, many people have sources of doubt come out of maybe they're studying something in the sciences, and on the surface it seems like they're isn't able to have like a meshed view of this way of science and a view of faith, and they have doubts in that way. Um, But what Jude is reminding us here, and what we see taking place in this church, is that doubt can actually even be a byproduct of being part of the church, Um, that essentially what was going on in this church that Jude was writing to has been the source of doubt for some people. Um, And I get this. I'm sure some of you have maybe seen this as well, um, where if you've ever been part of the church for any length of time, the longer you're part of a church, the more you see things, right? Um, You'll see some of the gossip. You'll see some of the fighting. You'll see maybe some of the politics that are involved. Or maybe, like in this case, you've just seen blatantly bad teaching, just some terrible ideas and the gospel being completely twisted. And these things can for a lot of us, become sources of doubt. For a lot of the people that we know, um, these have been some of the things that have led people away from the church, away from Christ, and to just doubt their faith. Um, I was talking to someone recently who I've invited to church quite a few times, and I was just reminding him again. I was like, hey, you know, I'd love to see you. I'd love for you to, to join us and get to meet some of these people. And he just quipped pretty quickly and said, you know, like, I really don't like the church. It's just full of hypocrites. Um, to which I always have to respond, like, that's okay, there's room for one more, we'd love to have you, Um, you know, but he got that I was joking, he knew that I wasn't serious, and he just began to explain that, like, you know, he's, he's okay with Christianity, he's okay with Jesus, he just doesn't really like his ground crew, you know, like, the classic thing that we've heard stereotypically over and over again, like, yeah, I'm fine with Christ, I just don't like Christians, right, and this this is something that we probably understand a bit. Um, I've met some Christians, so I get it. Um, I'm actually <laughs> chief among them um, in terms of some of the people who maybe don't always make Jesus look very good. Like, I am likely the source of doubt in somebody's life at some point. Um, and we have to recognize just this issue here, that especially what was happening in Jude's context is that there seemed to be doubt that was birthed out of issues that took place in the church. And this is something that is obviously near and dear to God's heart, that this these issues taking place in the church even seem to be a source of people's doubt. I and mean, it's often said that for every one mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, right? So we don't really know what the doubt was in that situation, but it's likely that people were probably falling off on one side where they might have fully believed what these false teachers were teaching. You know, it's said that they were abusing God's grace for the purpose of sensuality and It's likely that some people just bought onto that idea. And so they were probably doubting what the apostles had taught, the faith that was passed down to them by Jesus. And they were probably holding these ideas that these false teachers had taught in one hand and these ideas that they had been taught by others in another and thinking, "Mm, I don't know if I believe this because the false teachers are saying this. I doubt that that's actually a sin. And their doubt might have looked like that. Um, Or it's possible that they could have been just questioning Jesus altogether, questioning their faith altogether. Um, It could be that they were so confused, disappointed, disgusted by what had happened in this context um, that there seemed to be these leaders who acted like they cared, acted like they were there to help, um, but really they were greedy, prideful. Jude has all those similes of the different comparisons to nature of what they were really doing, and this can lead people to doubt altogether, this kind of manipulation, this kind of betrayal. And I think we have all seen, probably time and time again, if we have been around the church for any number of time, that these two things are, are things that happen all the time. And people either falling off onto one side of thinking like, well, I was taught this and now I'm being taught that. I don't know what to believe. Or just the feelings of betrayal, feelings of manipulation that can lead people to doubt. This is a very common issue that it might seem really intense in Jude's day, but I guarantee you it still happens in ours as well. It was in 2016 that Dave Kinnaman, um, who's a researcher for Barna, he wrote a book called You Lost Me. And Dave Kinnaman, he said this, he was interviewing a lot of, if you could flip through there and get to the Kinnaman quote there, but he was interviewing a lot of 18 to 29-year-olds who had either recently left the church or who were thinking about it, and he was just asking them, like, what is going on? And at the end of his research, he kind of presented this where he said that there is a generation of young, young Christians who believes that the churches in which they were raised are not safe and hospitable places to express doubts. Many feel that they have been offered slick or half-baked answers to their thorny, honest questions, and that the institutionalized church has failed them. Um, And frankly, this this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy, and I think the book of Jude is calling us to reverse that trend, and I think has a lot of good resources on how exactly we cannot do this exact same thing um, that has been taking place over and over again in many cases. Because Jude, he equips us to deal with that. And one of the ways that I think uh, we can often warp our theology into making an environment that is like this, what, what Kinnaman describes, is I think we can have a warp theology of thinking that doubt and unbelief are the exact same thing. I and mean, I think this is a really big issue because we have to recognize that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Um, that if you were to think about it in terms of belief being over here and unbelief over here, well, I think doubt is kind of in the middle. It's kind of that teetering on the edge. Doubt can certainly lead to unbelief. But it certainly isn't the same thing. Uh, Because you see, the word that's often used in the Bible for doubt is the Greek word diakrino, um, which essentially means to be separated or to be torn apart, to judge between competing ideas, to be torn in two directions. Um, In the Latin, it's the word dubtari, which just comes from the word two. It's kind of to be two-minded or to be pulled in two directions. And so when a person doubts they're pulled in two directions. They have these two competing points of view that they're wrestling with. They're essentially sitting on a fence not knowing which side to jump off of. Um, and it's actually really interesting if you study kind of the ways a lot of different people groups around the world have, have viewed and understood doubt, um, especially just in their languages, this is a really common thing. We have the ancient Greeks talking about this idea of being torn, right? It's like you're torn in two directions. Um, well, in Cantonese, uh, one of the languages in China, which is really full of word pictures, their word for doubt is a word for a man having his feet in two different boats. Um, that's what doubting is. So that's not going to go well. Um, that's probably kind of a risky situation. Um, or the Peruvians, they talk about it as having two thoughts in your mind at the same time. And it's like, I-, I can't even focus on one. They're like both there fighting for one another. Or in some of the native Guatemalan languages, they say that doubt is a person whose heart is divided, split between the two. And so doubt, it's it's being torn in two directions. It's like this this confidence in God on one hand, belief in God. But then something maybe has happened. Maybe school has happened. Cancer has happened. False teaching has happened. And now we have these two competing things. These two competing things. And this tearing process seems to make us uncomfortable. And so, this is what often many of us have gone through as well. That many of us have probably experienced this at one point or another when it comes to our relationship with Jesus of maybe being torn in these two directions, whether it be through our experience that brings us up, whether it be for maybe a teaching, maybe a confusing thing, maybe a betrayal of someone that we looked up to, that we respected. Uh, But this is out. And this is not the same thing as unbelief we'll get into that because Jude really helps us to understand what unbelief is. But unbelief throughout the scriptures is often a different word. It's usually the word apostia, which is often just an unwillingness to believe. It's no trust. And it's often seen in scenarios as being no interest, um, no interest in faith. And so doubt would say, like, I'm not sure about this, but I want to know I'm seeking. And unbelief would say, like, I don't really care what's right. I just don't believe that. Um, Doubt would say, like, I'm pursuing truth, and I'm going to try to figure that out wherever it's going to lead. I just haven't found it yet. Uh, Unbelief would say, like, I believe I've found truth, and I'm pretty happy with this. Um, And it's not what this teaching is. And so in the context of Jude, we have to see that there really are these two groups, that these are two separate things. There is doubt, and there's unbelief, and we can't equate them as being the same thing. Um, Because there are the teachers, there are the people who seem to be twisting God's grace, And Jude essentially says that they're doing so out of unbelief, right? They don't seem to be interested in teaching the gospel at all. As we've gone through many of their motivations, they seem to be just interested in manipulation, interested in their own gain. It's in there that in the ESV, it says that they were devoid of the spirit, where he says that these are men without the spirit. Um, They don't have the Holy Spirit, is what Jude is saying which is saying that they are not saved, that they don't even believe. They don't have this faith. They don't have the spirit. And this is, this is the unbelief. This is one group here. But then there is this other group, and you have the people who are doubting that we get to at the end of the book there. You have people who have listened to these false teachers. James Jude's brother, he says that the one who doubts is like, it's like a wave getting blown around by the wind. Um, or Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that people get blown around by every wind of doctrine and by deceptive teachers. And this is essentially what's happened here. That there were people in the church who these false teachers have come in with their deceptive ideas, with their twisting of the scriptures, and they've just blown these people around. And so now people are torn. They're doubting. They're struggling here. But they aren't. If They aren't that one group of unbelief. They're these people who've been torn in two directions, who've been abused by these false teachers. And I think it's really important that we see the difference between the two. Um, Because Jude gives us a really good Old Testament example of how we should view unbelief and how we see that. In verse 5 when he talks about uh, God delivering the people out of Egypt, right? Jude doesn't seem to want to give us help in like telling us citations, and he seemed to just be ranting and rambling, so he's not like reading these passages for us. He's just like, and they're like this, and they're like this, and they're like that. And in verse 5, he reminded us about the Israelites in the wilderness, where he said, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is mentioning that these false teachers, they had unbelief. They didn't just have doubt. They had unbelief. And he's comparing them to the Israelites in the wilderness, which if you just look through, there are a few more that I didn't include. But all throughout, as the Israelites were in the wilderness, unbelief was something that just marked them. Uh, When they first crossed out of the Red Sea, they're grumbling that God has brought them to a place with no water. The only water they have is bitter water, right? And then in chapter 16, they're complaining about how they had no food. It's like, man, we're out here in the wilderness. God's not going to provide for us. We have no food. And then, later, the next chapter, they're complaining again about lack of water and that's when Moses strikes the rock, right? Water comes out of the rock. When you get to chapter 14, um, the Israelites... Or no, once you're in chapter 11, then they were still complaining about food because God had miraculously given them manna and quail, right? But now it's like, ugh, all we have is manna and quail. You know, back when we were slaves, we had it so good. And they were reminiscing about Egypt there. Then you get to chapter 14, and God says, hey, you're going to go into the promised land. You're going to take it. They had a report back from spies, and it looks good. It's going to be hard, but it's doable. We can take it. And the people complained. They're like, no, we can't do it. We need to get back to Egypt Later, we just looked at the story of Korah's rebellion, where they did this test to see if you know, Korah and those guys should be the leaders. God opened up a hole in the ground. They fell into it. And then they complained that God's leaders just died. Um, and this is the picture of unbelief. And one of the most clearest examples that we have from this whole story that Jude has just cited that covers so many chapters is the one in Numbers chapter 14 there. or in verse 2. It says that all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt, right? They're about to go into the promised land and they're like, what? (laughs) Why couldn't we have died in Egypt or in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so they said to each other, we should choose a leader and just go back to Egypt. And so here we see this is not doubt. (laughs) This is not just questioning. How's God going to do this? How's God going to provide for us? Um, This is making a plan to straight up disobey God. We are making a plan to get out of here. God wants us to go in there. We're going to raise up a leader. We're going to head back to Egypt. And so they were not asking questions out of uncertainty. They were not asking God to show them how he's going to provide, how he's going to make this happen. They had made up their mind. They had made up their mind. We don't trust what God is doing. And this is unbelief here. Um, and this is one of the things that you see in Scripture, Is as we've just talked about, even in prayer time, is that, that honesty, that, that even expressing doubt before God, even complaining to God in Scripture is often viewed as worship. And when it becomes rebellion is when it's complaining about God. So there is complaining to God, God, this situation, I need you to do something. And then there's this situation where it's complaining about God. <laughs> God has just brought us out here to die. God's plan is the worst, which is what they were doing here. And you see even in here this difference between doubt and unbelief. Because one of the best pictures, I think, of, of healthy doubt in the Bible comes to us from Psalm 73. Um, the Psalms are full of this stuff. But there is an entire Psalm that two years ago in the summer we covered, if you remember that one. But in Psalm 73, it's the Psalm of Asaph. I just want to read some of it for you to help you to see um, really this picture. Uh, hopefully I didn't mess up all the slides on there. Uh, but in Psalm 73, if you find your way there, um, you get this picture of what doubt actually should look like and how to actually healthily process this. Where Asaph is saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens, and they're not plagued by human ills. And so Asaph is saying, like, hey, God's good to his people, but I'm looking at all of the people who are not God's people who don't believe in God, and their lives are great. Like, they're having fun. And so why is my life harder? And he's struggling with these doubts. In verse 12, he says, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands of innocence. What was the point of all this? He says, all day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And so Asaph is questioning everything. He's like, hey, I've been following God, and it's making my life harder. Why am I doing this? He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny, right? These people that he was jealous of that were causing him to question everything. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They're like a dream. When one awakes, when you arise, right, you'll despise them like fantasies. They just go right away. And he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He's now like repenting at this point. He says, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel And afterward, you will take me into glory. So Asaph here, he's really processed these things before God. Like seeing how good people who don't have faith in God, who don't follow God, have it, made him question everything. And he has these doubts and he has these complaints. He's like, God, I'm not really okay with the way the world is working right now. Why do they have so much fun and why are they able to get rich? doing whatever they want. Like, why do I have to be fair to people and not rip people off? (sighs) This is the worst. And then, instead of, like the Israelites, just saying, I don't like what God is doing, I'm out, I'm going back to Egypt, I'm going to find another way to live, Asaph instead goes, God, I need to have a word with you. I I need to express these things to you. Essentially, God, I'm coming over. Um, Here's what I'm wrestling with. I want to talk to you. And he goes, he enters the sanctuary. So you can see the distinction here between the Israelites in the wilderness saying, God's plan is the worst. We're going to figure our own out. Or Asaph being like, I don't understand God's plan. I need to meet with him face to face and hear what exactly is going on. And this, this is really important for us to understand. As we experience doubt in our own lives, as we see it work its way through our world, doubt and unbelief are two different things. And this really matters because oftentimes I think our prescriptions for unbelief would not be the same prescriptions that we would give to doubt. Um, because oftentimes we're typically given two options. When it comes to the kind of issues that Dave Kinneman was addressing of how people don't feel like their doubts are really handled in church, um, oftentimes it's because we're given two, one of two options. One, it's either we just need to demonize our doubts completely, just suppress it, be quiet about it, don't address it, just ignore it. Or we idolize our doubt, and we make everything about doubt, and it's really trendy now to just doubt everything. Um, But this first option, I would just say, is definitely not what Jude has in mind here for how to address the issue that's faced this church. Um, Because this is what you see commonly in maybe some more legalistic, um, rigid churches, where the environment is that doubters are just to keep it quiet, don't ask those questions, don't bring up those issues, Don't wrestle with these things, or, you know, you could be judged, you could be silenced, you could even be ostracized, right? Um, And what often happens in these cases where we might demonize doubt and demonize these kind of wrestlings is that those questions are just suppressed. They're just put away. They're just hidden. Um, And oftentimes we just get afraid to ask questions, afraid that we'll be belittled, we'll be made fun of, or we'll even be maybe demonized and looked at as the enemy in this way. And I think this comes out of the misconception that doubt is the same thing as unbelief. And it's like, well, well, we got to fight and stand up for our faith. And it's like, well, doubt is not an obstacle to that. Doubt is not the opposite of that. And we have to recognize that if we demonize our doubt, we miss out on one of the best ways of learning that we do have, right? The doubt is actually one of the best learning environments where, where we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to learn. We're supposed to actually understand our faith and have a grasp of what we believe Um, The reality is that if we don't ask those questions and we just suppress those things, it's not that likely um, that we will actually get those answered in a good way. Because the world is going to be quick to offer those answers. The world is going to be quick to explain our doubts. And so we have to be a people within the church who are not afraid of those questions either, but who are able to ask those questions, to answer those things, right? I mean, there are all these questions that come up, right? Like, we believe that there is a God who created all things. How do we know that? How do we know that? We should probably have a bit of a grasp, right? Or we kind of base our lives off a two to 3,000-year-old book. Is that wise? Why do we do that? Can we actually trust it? Right? Or this person says that thing's a sin, and then these people over here say it's not. How do we know? But what can happen in the situations where we demonize doubt, if someone just brings it up, hey, this person says this isn't a sin. And we can be all too quick to say, like, you know, belittling. How could you think that? You're smarter than that. Well, obviously that's wrong, or that's just not the way that we do things here. And I think we have to be careful in suppressing these. Because obviously that misses out on opportunities to learn, but this also just means that these doubts which have been suppressed, they're just going to reemerge later, probably even stronger. (laughs) I think doubt's greatest strength is often secrecy, that these things are not brought up, these things are not addressed. So that's, that's one of the issues that we face if we think doubt and unbelief are the same thing. Um, but one of the other issues and one that is increasingly common today is idolizing doubt, right? Uh, this is pretty trendy to just doubt everything, question everything. Uh, many are encouraged to put more trust in their doubt than in the things that they're doubting, right? Um, we see it all the time in certain genres of, of podcasts and books. You've got really popular podcasts, you know, like the evangelicals or the Deconstructionists. Um, and it's pretty trendy. And I get kind of the sentiment of it that there are important times in which maybe there are some things that are parts of our faith that shouldn't be. You know, some furniture items in the living room of our faith that maybe could get be getting rid of. Um, and so in a sense, some of that can be done. Um, there is a bit of that, like, cleaning and reorganizing of our beliefs um, that probably should take place. Um, but the problem with some of the, the idolization of doubt or even leading into this kind of uh, stream of thought that's often referred to as deconstruction is it's not going to lead anywhere. It'll just lead to the bare bones, right? That the problem with it, aside from its ties to like literal Nazis like Heidegger, who he's actually the one who coined the, the term deconstruction. He actually was not a great guy. Um, but either way, one of the issues is that it'll just lead you to rock bottom. Like, if we start deconstructing this building, uh, we're going to get rid of some things we probably should get rid of, like the carpet. Great. We should probably get rid of that. Um, But if you keep going, eventually there's nothing left, and there isn't even a foundation to stand on. And the problem is that sooner or later you will have to construct something. Like, you'll have to live your life. You'll have to believe in something. You can't just doubt. You can't just deconstruct every relationship you have. Your spouse will not enjoy that kind of life, questioning, deconstructing everything they do. And the issue is if we tear everything down to the bones, you just won't be left with anything other than probably a personality cult with like one good podcast you do like, um, or you'll end up just making God out of your own image that agrees with everything that you like. And so idolizing of doubt, it can lead to this or something. Sure, it's good to question. It's good to have these thoughts, but just doubting for the point of doubting isn't going to lead to anything helpful. Um there's a book written by a pastor named Josh Porter. Um it's entitled Death to Deconstruction and his subtitle is really good. He calls it reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Um, cuz Josh Porter he's a pastor in in Portland, Oregon where, you know, you want to have tattoos and and you know, drink beer and swear a whole lot just to look, you know, really really rebellious and to look really counterculture. And what he's saying is like, hey, that's like not cool. Everybody does that. If you want to be rebellious, Be faithful to God. Nobody does that. (laughs) This is what he says. He says, any two-year-old can tear up a room, but it takes maturity, wisdom, and courage to live in the tension of a conflicted faith. And so there is this risk in really idolizing doubt for the point of doubting. It actually isn't that brave to question Christianity. Everybody does it. You're not the rebel you think you are. Maybe you are in South Dakota, but most people won't think you are elsewhere. (laughs) Um, And so we'll, we'll wrestle with these doubts. We'll wrestle with these things. And we will be next to people who will. And Jude equips us well, I think, of just what to do. Of just what to do. And I think the first piece of prescription that we get from Jude is in verses 17 through 19, where Jude essentially says, don't be surprised about this. He says, "Remember all the prophecies about this. Like this should come as no surprise." He says, "But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, and it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, right? So if if our result is if our doubt, I guess, is the result of false teaching, we." can't be surprised. We have to remember Jesus said this was going to happen. The apostles said over and over again, like, wolves will come in in sheep's clothing. These kind of things will take place. Peter says it. Paul says it. Jesus says it. Peter says a very similar thing um, to this in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he says that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He's saying, don't lose hope just because this has happened. But Jude is, I think, helping us out immensely by just saying, don't be surprised when this happens. Don't be surprised. Remember that these issues that come about even within the church is not outside of God's control. And it's not something he didn't foresee. Jesus is still ruling. He's still reigning. And oftentimes we get so shaken up by maybe like a public leader who teaches something really dramatic or by a situation that takes place that really rocks our faith. And essentially what Judah is saying is, Hey, don't be surprised by these sort of things, right? These these things shouldn't come as a surprise, because you know Jesus says that He will build His church, and I think sometimes we get so distraught when, like, maybe a public celebrity or a leader like denounces their faith or teaches something so wacky, um, and we get scandalized and we think, like, man, I don't know what I believe anymore. But Jesus says He'll build His church, and what do you think He's going to build it with? He's going to build it with us, <laughs> and what are we? We're sinners. Right, um, And so I don't think that we can have our faith wrecked every single time um, when there isn't perfection in the church or when these things happen. Um, I think obviously there are stories that we've all heard in the media of, you know, extreme abuse, and manipulation to these sense, And those, of course, need to be renounced and condemned. And those situations need to be grieved. Um, but the, the doubt and the wrestling that we face in that situation should never lead us to just throwing away the whole church or to throwing away Jesus. So our faith is not in these leaders anyway. Jude says, don't be surprised that this thing happened. Don't be surprised. We can't see these issues and then be willing to walk away from everything because of it. Essentially, it's this call. Don't let your your doubt slide right to unbelief. Don't throw it all away just because of that doubt. And the Apostle Peter, I think one of his best moments, he essentially deals with this. Where it was, you know, in John chapter 6, it was this tense moment where people were walking away from Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter responds with, where else would I go? Who else would I follow? I think this is one of Peter's best moments there. That you guys, you know, we can see the imperfection in the church. We can see the issues that might plague Christianity throughout the years. But where else would we go? What else is there? Uh, No new God is coming to save us. I'll warn you that Jesus kind of cleared the field of other gods. Um, So you kind of have one option, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Or like you can make a God around yourself, but that might be kind of disappointing. Or you can just follow along. Some of these false teachers, they would love to have your money. Uh, But I think Peter's situation is a great example for us of just where else would I go? Who else would I turn to? Um, Because that's what we're left with. If not Christ, there's not really anywhere else to turn to. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And don't be surprised when those in our midst struggle with doubts. And that's why Jude, he ends the book there, getting down into verse 20, with how to help, how to handle those in our midst who struggle with doubts. And he says that there are essentially three kinds of people, or or those needing help. Those who have been harmed by these false teachers. Um, there's the doubting. There's those needing to be snatched out of the fire. And then there's kind of those to show mercy towards with fear. Um, and so this first, this first group, it's there in verse 20. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Um, so these are the people who have been misguided. They're torn between the teachings that have been shared. Maybe they're torn because they have been betrayed and they've been manipulated. And so now they're wrestling. They're, they're waffling at this point. And Jude says, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them. Which I just want to show how intense this call from Jude is. Um, because Jude doesn't just say, like, hey, be nice to them. Be patient with them. You know, buy them a snack every once in a while. Jude says, have mercy on them. And mercy... This is something we see throughout the scriptures. Mercy is not giving someone the punishment they deserve. It's not giving someone the punishment they deserve. Okay, so these people, like, they, they've they wrestled with these ideas. They're kind of waffling between the truth and what they've been taught. And, like, yeah, believing the false teachers, that's inexcusable. Those are wacko ideas. Like, it's obviously twisted. It's obviously wrong. Um, they probably deserve to be belittled, Right. And Jude says, don't give them what they deserve. It's like, I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm just saying, like, they might be deserving to be told, man, you're dead wrong. I can't believe you believe that. But what if we don't? (laughs) What would mercy do? Mercy would probably not be correcting in that way, right? It's like, well, but they deserve then to, you know, have this situation take place. They deserve to just be flat out condemned for their doubt there. And I think what Jude is saying is, what if you don't? What if you take a different route? Um, What if you focus on what they do get right? What if you focus on listening to them? Why do they believe that? What are they struggling with? They deserve to be punished, sure. Twisting, perverting, the grace of God. Terrible thing. But what would mercy look like here? Not giving what is deserved. Right? Because these people, they're wrestling. They're torn here. And in this first case of those who doubt, he invokes this word, mercy. And in every situation where we dealing with someone who is wrestling with those doubts, we have to ask that question of what would be merciful here? Regardless of what I know, you know, i got to stand for what, the truth here. Sure. But what if he didn't give them what they deserved in that case? Be merciful to those who doubt. And then he has this second group here. He says, snatch out of the fire. <laughs> there's this other group, save others by snatching them from the fire. Um, so these are people who are in the fire. They're on the wrong path. Um, They're towards heresy. They seem to kind of be in the error already. And this, I think, we've got to have a different approach to than Christians often have. Because if you think about the picture that Jude paints here for us, I imagine, okay, there's a house burning down, and there's someone sitting in the living room just thinking like, This is fine. I'm not in danger. This is good stuff, right? It's warm and cozy on a 60-degree August day. And they believe the things that have led others to doubt. They've listened to those podcasts. They've read those books. Maybe you saw that they, like, went to that rally. They, like, believe those political things. They, like, shared those memes, those kind of things. Like, they're in the fire, And Christians, we usually respond to people like that, I think, either with, like, hatred or with fear, where the hatred would just say, like, well, yeah, they messed with fire, and now they're burnt. Like, they're getting what they deserve. Not my problem. Don't mess with those ideas. And your house wouldn't be on fire. Or, out of fear, Christians just often say, like, well, they're into some dangerous, sketchy stuff now, so out of preservation for myself, I'm just going to, like, I'm not going in there. I'm not the one to go in there. And I think God is calling us here to see the person in the fire there as the ones that we are called to go in and grab. That if you have signed up to be a Christian, then you have signed up to be on God's search and rescue team. You have. And so I think we are not allowed to say, they're getting what they deserve, and you shouldn't have messed with fire. Not my problem. I know better. I wouldn't have had that happen with me. No, no, no. It's, it's your job to go after those people now. And I don't think we as Christians can say that looks really dangerous. Like I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to get involved. No, no, no. I think it's our job to run towards that danger where people are. And as Jude says, to snatch them out of the fire, right? Whatever this looks like, I think we have to have this mindset of, of no excuses for helping others who believe these things. They're the ones getting tossed by the wind and the waves. And our job as followers of Christ is to be the ones to go in after them. Be the ones to go in after them. But he does have this third group. There is this third group where he says, again, show mercy, but it's kind of tempered with fear. Even hating the garment stained by the flesh. And so I think this is that person that we are tempted to see as a completely lost cause. Um, This is the person who's bought in all the way to the false teachers. Maybe this is the person even pushing some of the false teachings. We would just look at them and be like, man, they're too far gone. I don't even know what to do for them, right? And again, Jude invokes mercy, right? What do they deserve? Man, I mean, they've twisted the gospel. They've done all these terrible things what do they deserve? And Jude essentially says, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Show mercy. Be merciful towards them. But this mercy needs to be done in wisdom, right? Uh, Mixed with fear. Mercy mixed with fear. And then he he says this phrase, uh, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He essentially says in the Greek here, it's phobos chiton. It's a phobos. It's a phobia of the chiton, of the garment, of the undergarment. So what Jude is saying is have a phobia of their underwear, essentially. Um, This is what he's saying. The garment was the layer that you wore under your clothes, and phobos is a fear. And so Jude, scholars are kind of divided on what he's saying there, Um, but one is that this could be an allusion to leprosy and to how you would work with lepers. Um, Where with leprosy, you know, your skin was rotting, flesh was kind of falling off, and it would literally stain or spot your clothes. And so it's kind of this idea of carefully working with someone with that kind of sickness, where you're going to help in any way you can, but being careful, you know, not to touch the infected parts, not to touch the dirt there. Kind of a good rule of thumb that you always have in a public place is if you find an article of clothing and it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it right, that you're trying to help, but you're being careful in the same sense. And so it could be this allusion to leprosy here, where you're looking for ways to help, but carefully, not just grabbing and getting all mixed up in it. But some scholars do think that this is a very specific allusion to the sin that was being done. Um, We know that they were encouraging some kind of wild sexual behaviors. And so, Some speculate they could have possibly had like a a special underwear that they were going around wearing to kind of let everybody know what they were into. There are cases like that in the area. Or it's possible that they were just walking around in these undergarments, essentially. Um, So these people are kind of wild. Um, Either one, whichever it is, any of those three options, Jude is saying, hey, these people are not a lost cause. We still have the responsibility to show mercy, but do so carefully. Do so with a a bit of fear of recognizing you're not just going in crazy and without care, um, but to actually be aware of of the risks involved here. And I think practically this would often look like bringing another along. Um, You're going to have to have help with some of these people. Maybe you view them as a lost cause. God is saying, we don't give up here, but we don't just barge in without any care. That there still is this risk. Still is this risk. And so this is how Jude says um, to deal with this. That oftentimes doubt can be sourced in the church. Leaders who fail or teach blatant, twisting Christianity of, of those bad ideas that have been out there, those can lead people to doubt. But Jude is saying, one, don't be surprised about that. Jesus predicted it. It's not outside of his control. For those who, who are really waffling in this, who are really struggling with doubt because of it, be merciful. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Show mercy mixed with fear to some. And he's invoking this call to mercy because I think as we know that no one is more merciful to the doubter, to those wrestling, than Christ. And so if going through this you haven't been thinking of others who are doubting. You've just been thinking of yourself. Then will you just hear Christ's mercy for you? He's calling us to be merciful because of his mercy on doubters. Just like Nick Lettison earlier with, with Thomas d- doubting Christ there. Because he didn't get to see him like the disciples did. And then when he finally showed up, Jesus didn't say, well, guess what? You're fired as a disciple. Sorry, you didn't have the faith. No, no, no. He said, Thomas, look, Touch. This is Christ's posture to you in your doubt. And so we're going to close here in prayer as we move into worship. And I just want to give you the opportunity to have God minister to you. During this time, maybe you've been wrestling with with a doubt, with a question. And during this time of prayer, would you just ask God to reveal himself in a new way? Would you ask God, God, what do you want me to know about you today? For others of us, God might be kind of challenging us to be more merciful to those around us. Uh, He might have brought people in mind who we have thought, like, that's not my problem. They're off in the deep end and that's their fault. Maybe God is convicting you um, that you were called to snatch them out of the fire, to be more merciful in that. Whatever it is, would you bring that before the Lord? But you ask him to give you the strength to follow through on that? And so, Jesus, um, we just come before you. We just thank you for your mercy on us. Uh, We just pause and we just grieve so many of the cases in which you have had your reputation marred because of Christians like us, God. We just repent of that, but yet we see your goodness and your love in it. Um, That though we're not perfect, that you've loved us and you've died for us. And that you give us your Holy Spirit as a help as we seek to overcome our our sinful desires, God. And so would you help each and every one of us? We just come before you and we ask, God, with these questions we've been wrestling with, would you speak? Would you reveal yourself? And God, as we've considered these things, faces, names have, have come to mind. Would you empower us and encourage us to be your workers sent out into the harvest field. Give us an opportunity this week, God, to play a role in in your spirit, bringing people to belief. you to stand as we enter into worship. The
1: God of Abraham The God of covenants, The faithful promises And time and time again You have proven You do just what you say Though the storms may come and go may blow out and-
0: To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. To Him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. So thank you for being here this morning, Common Ground Church. Grace and peace. Have a wonderful week.